Welcome to the Education Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsor, Limmer Education, we can make science more accessible and understandable. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the April 2023 Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Education Research Journal Club. The PCRF promotes research literacy to advance the science of EMS educational research. And here with the PCRF Journal Club, we take a closer look at some of the latest research happening in medical education. First, we want to big, send out a big thank you to Limmer Education for sponsoring these podcasts so we can bring you the best of science in education. I'm Megan Corey. I'm here with Dr. Kim McKenna, Katie O'Connor, and Alex Tremblay. We may be joined by others as we go along here. Uh, but we are going to discuss today an article that's published just this year in the International Journal of Healthcare Simulation. And this is entitled Entrustable Professional Activities for Simulation Faculty? Question mark, exclamation point. Um, a novel approach to standardizing mentorship and faculty development for healthcare simulation programs. So thank you all for joining us today. Uh, this is an open access article, so you can head on out to the internet and pull it yourself and take a read through. Uh, we want to remind you that you can use the chat feature to type in your questions and comments. We can bring those into the conversation as we go. And remember, if you miss any, and I think there's a Q&A as well, if you want to actually raise something uh, a question uh, to the panelists. Uh, now, remember, if you miss any of these journal clubs, you can also visit our YouTube page. So we have uh, our YouTube page. It's a ch it's a channel, um, youtube.com slash at PCRS, at PCRF, at UCLA. And you can look up any of the prior episodes of this and the clinical and any other of the podcasts that have been held uh, out by the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum. Also, before we get into our article, another reminder, we still have, uh, let's see, is that two months from now? We do. We have two months from now uh, until the deadline for the call for abstracts. So remember that you can gather your data out there uh, semester's ending. If you're an educator and you're thinking about, well, I've got to put together my annual report May 15th for at least for accredited paramedic programs you do, or maybe you're working on grant funding or you're working on other data for your institution or your organization. And maybe there's some good tidbits in there that you'd like to actually publish and, and get out there and talk to colleagues. Uh, well, there's an abstract deadline, June 30th, 2023. You can visit prehospitalcare.org and see all of the details and the abstract submissions are online. Um, so get that data together. Uh, maybe talk to a few colleagues, see if you can pull some data and get out there and we can share some research. Um, so that's just a quick reminder that we've got that prehospitalcare.org and make sure that you've got um, uh, your data together and get out there and we'll see you at um, some of the future conferences with some good research out there. All right, so let's get to our article. And uh, so this article, and the reason for the question mark exclamation point is uh, EPAs or entrustable professional activities have really traditionally been, they've been developed, you know, in 2010, I think was the first article came out of the Netherlands about the use of, or the question about, uh, do we, you know, can we trust this, learner who's now become an intern, has now become a resident and is on their way to medical practice. Can we trust them with um, this act, this practice or this activity? Um, and so this was a, uh, a development in really in medical education and has been uh, incorporated in, and implemented um, throughout the medical curriculum. But for simulation, for, for faculty, for uh, education, we've seen some development of EPAs, but this is article specifically targets simulation faculty. So these are people that are training to become simulation educators or simulation 
facilitators. So this was this article describes their approach to how they standardized a mentorship and a faculty development program for healthcare simulation programs. So very specific, but um, very relatable to a number of different areas in EMS where we train uh, interns and others. Now we're kind of turning to how do we train faculty. So how do we achieve and maintain the quality of our simulation educators or facilitators? And that's kind of the question that supports all of this. Although there's models of, of developing competency as a simulation educator, um, peer coaching, mentoring, uh, use of specific tools, which the article cites a couple of specific tools, there, you know, these are tools that you use to observe and assess uh, faculty and specific elements like debriefing. Debriefing is definitely one of the areas that's emphasized. Uh, those areas are, they focus on usually individual moments in time. Um, so spot checks of competency rather than documenting a progression or a trajectory, as they put it, of development from novice to independent practice. Again, with the emphasis on trusting this um, you know, new faculty to be able to perform something independently and without uh, any input. So in medical education, this concept of entrustment is used to develop practitioners, residents, interns, faculty. And the question of, can I trust that learner that can perform an activity of professional practice independently forms that basis of what's known as entrustable professional activities. So an EPA is, and I'll just define it from the early earliest literature on it, a unit of professional practice, a task or group of tasks that can be fully entrusted to a trainee when they demonstrate the necessary competence to execute the activity unsupervised. So EPAs have benchmark milestones that are observable behaviors that the preceptor or faculty um, can use to assess a student or intern and show progression of learning. They also shift the focus, and I think um, this is something we've talked about on here, Alex, is I think especially shifting the focus from time-based to competency-based learning, which is a, that's a tough topic. At some point, we, we should talk more about the whole idea of time-based versus competency-based learning. Um, and trustable, if we break down these, these words, and trustable are acts that require trust by patients, colleagues, society, professional would be activities that are confined to occupations with extraordinary qualification and right, which means it's a specialty focused um, activity. And then the activity is a task that has to be done in the workplace. So they ground competency-based education and competencies in daily practice. Uh, they're work descriptors, so they require workers with competencies. So they connect that competency to practice. An example um, used might be uh, an EPA might be a big one, like gather a history and perform a physical exam. You need KSAs, you need the knowledge, skills, and, and attitudes to achieve multiple competencies in that one EPA. So, and that includes, you know, uh, things like knowledge of anatomy and physiology and differentials and disease processes, um, the uh, awareness of biases maybe, and um, certain specific uh, findings uh, based upon gender or something like that. So there's all kinds of smaller elements in here, but they the the, the trick and not trick, but the um, challenge is they have to be observable and measurable. So that's where we'll see that the they ran into challenges here with uh, defining certain things and then saying, well, could they be you know observable or measurable? Another example, maybe from the pre-hospital setting, would be. <clears throat> providing pain management to patients in the emergency setting. That involves, if that, <clears throat> excuse me, if that was an EPA, that involves multiple competencies, multiple knowledge, skills, and abilities or demonstrations of competency in order to trust someone to be able to provide pain management to patients in the emergency setting. So that's kind of the concept here. So what these um, the researchers did was they asked the question specifically of their simulation program, their mentoring program that was in existence. This is a Canadian study. So it was done uh, in an existing established um, provincial simulation program is what it was called. Uh, so they performed this study. Um, they did a modified Delphi technique 
to develop standardized EPAs and milestones that a simulation faculty is trusted to uh, independently perform by the end of a faculty mentorship program. So again, this was a Canadian study. Um, and the first thing that they did was they performed a needs assessment um, and identified that there's a lack of standardization of their simulation faculty training, that there was siloism. And they saw that simulation accreditation was an opportunity to standardize their curriculum. So they conducted a SWOT analysis, uh, they aligned uh, with the accreditation standards, and they developed um, a, a curriculum map um, and using these EPAs and milestones and developed this tool called the EPA FAST, which was a faculty assessment for simulation tool, which I'd love to see. I tried to click on the, um, the additional supplemental materials, but it didn't, it didn't go directly to anything. So I couldn't uh, figure that out. I'm not sure if anybody else found that. But, and then they used a Delphi technique, which is the group consensus strategy that we've talked about on this uh, podcast and that strategically uses literature and expert opinion to develop over time through rounds of review um, EPAs uh, for simulation faculty. So they developed EPAs and then milestones. Okay, so let's look at then who they looked at. And I wanna know if um, uh, Kim McKenna is here, Alex, uh, Katie O'Connor, is here and I see Dr. Bill Toon here too. So um, welcome you guys. And I'm curious if, if you know, I know we were talking before we came on, we were thinking about how it's hard to continue to focus on that they, they were looking at how to train simulation faculty. And all I kept thinking about while I was reading is how how EPAs and uh, and this could be used to develop preceptors who train interns, um, paramedic interns in the field. So um, I'm wondering, Kim, if you have any, uh, if that was the same for you. Uh, that's exactly what I was thinking about that um, because within, uh, you know, that capstone, particularly, you know, when a student's doing the capstone, the preceptors observing uh, a bunch of competencies within one call and essentially, you know, managing a, uh, agitated behavioral patient could be an entrustable activity that requires that they demonstrate competency in therapeutic communication, de-escalation, uh, perhaps medication management, safe restraint of, you know, you, you just, there are so many competency competencies that are embedded within those entrustable activities. Um, and, you know, the, the problem is, of course, when you get them into the capstone experience, you can't assure that, you know, nobody's really defined what those entrustable activities are in EMS, I don't think. Mm -hmm. so we said, okay, you have to have X number of um, team leads, but do you really have some critical ones? And that's where that deliberate practice in yes. Katie's world of simulation comes in because you have to be able to assure that that they are able to demonstrate those, whether it be in simulation or in the real world. So yeah, it really resonated with me once I sort of got my brain wrapped around what exactly was an entrustable activity because mm -hmm. I really wasn't sure. Yeah, same here. And um, I, I ran into these not in the education literature about training uh, medical residents. I ran into it actually in the simulation literature, um, meaning, you know, I think it was a comprehensive healthcare simulation is a, a textbook and they actually have a podcast and they were talking about using EPAs to develop students in simulation. So they're still talking about the students, not about the faculty, but, um, and that's why the big question mark and exclamation point in the title here is because, you know what, let's take this concept and now let's turn it on the faculty training because usually we're talking about how to develop students. And uh, I've, I've, heard a lot about EPAs being used to, or, or this simulation being used to help develop the competencies within an EPA. Let's put it that way. So when you see that, when we talk about something like developing history, taking and physical exam techniques, can you measure some competencies within a simulation if you're not you know, at, and, and add that to the clinical experiences, you know, and so that's how I've seen it used is, is how can we develop these, this EPA within the context of the simulation. And that includes some of the things you're talking about, Kim, which is 
you know, um, de-escalation, <clears throat> de-escalation, talking to patients, role play. Simulation has been used to develop those, you know, competencies that go with the, the larger EPA. So, Alex, I'm wondering, too, in the continuing education world, um, this struck me as ongoing competency as well, because they're not just talking about initial training and and licensure, pre-licensure. They're also talking about, you know, ongoing. And Kim, you've also been in this uh, field of continuing tra- education. Right. Looks like Alex had to step away for a minute, but okay. um, yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. You know, that's one of the things that, um, you know, when we graduate people, you know, can we be assured that that they they could do all of those entrustable activities? And I think the answer is probably not always, <laughs> but um, that's why, you know, part of the annual continuing education is kind of a needs assessment of where are the gaps um, that people have and um, trying to develop your plan for the year for continuing education has to include some of those knowledge gaps so that you can build in education that will include competencies that could be enclosed within those entrustable activities. And, you know, Mm -hmm. there's been literature um, published on just like, for example, behavioral health and how people felt like they didn't have those competencies. They didn't know how to handle those calls. And so I think there's an opportunity out there to establish some of those entrustable activities for our profession that could be used in initial education or in continuing education, continuing competency. Mm -hmm. It's my dog's mortal enemy the postman was here so i had to step away for a moment i apologize <laughs> uh one of the things that i i thought a lot about in terms of that like post orientation post fto period is i and 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 maybe some folks can say in the chat but where i have worked i've worked at a number of services once folks are off of fto it's it's up to the education department to guarantee that ongoing um ongoing competency right and we had toyed with the idea of, you know, if you happen to have a shift with an FTO, maybe they could fill it like an observation form. But in the education setting, even in, in a really excellent education setting, it's much easier to show the competency that leads to trust than it may be on an ambulance if you're having a bad day or, you know, whatever the case is. It's a skill that you do twice a year, like our, our paramedics where I work decompress the chest on average like 0.4 times per paramedic per year, right? Um, and so you have to kind of have that faith and have a really good post post hoc inspection system, right? Quality assurance and 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 kind of that interaction with the hospitals. But the thing that stands out to me is there has to be something, and I think that that this points towards it a little bit that helps an organization understand the ongoing professional activities of their staff outside of the FTO program orientation or continuing education. I think, though, you bring up a really important point is during that FTO period where you're, um, you know, orienting somebody to your system and maybe a new graduate, you're assuming some agencies make the assumption that a, a graduate paramedic or EMT has the ability to perform those entrustable activities And really, it is the agency's responsibility to credential those providers and and after some kind of assessment or determination that they can work independently, that they can be trusted to work independently within the system. And it's really so widely variable across the country that it's kind of scary in some ways. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, let's move through. And I want to bring Katie in here because she's our, um, you know, simulation expert here um, as well. So this was the first, uh, first, this slide here just shows who, um, again, they use the modified Delphi techniques as they're developing these EPAs. These are the expert faculty that they had for professional representation, um, nursing, physicians, respiratory, a few from respiratory therapy. I'm not sure what they mean by paramedical. It could be you know, many uh, things, occupational therapy or others. Um, I didn't quite uh, catch that in, in here, but um, so you can see the largest group is, is physicians. And then uh, representation from rural academia and urban, mostly from urban about 53% and then academia about 35%, 11.8% from the rural setting. So they're trying to get, you know, when you do that modified Delphi, a good representation of your expert faculty 
Um, so, and essentially they started developing, um, and I probably should have put the previous, the, the next table, the next table we're going to spend some time on, but this is essentially go through rounds. Um, and we've, again, we've gone through modified Delphi, but your first round is very big generic questions where you're trying to get at what are these um, EPAs and the milestones that are necessary for training a simulation faculty during their mentorship. And they have a mentorship program. So um, they're, and each round, you're kind of bringing this down to uh, your key milestones here. I mean, your key, yeah, your key milestones and your key EPAs. And with each round, there's a specific set of, of questions. At one point, you rank, they, they will rank these in importance. And here we're seeing uh, the second and third round where rating of the developed EPAs uh, occurs. And you can see how it shifts based upon uh, the milestones and whether or not they can observe them. Um, that's it. That was one of the challenges they had. Can you get observable, you know, um, and milestones or, or competencies that you can document uh, behaviors? So you can see these are ratings within each round, a little bit of change in uh, levels of importance, but the highest level of importance still stays in this um, debriefing and pre-briefing area. So the communication with the learner uh, seems to be one of the, the big you know, factors that were most important factors that they uh, rated. So um, this is, I thought this table, it's very busy, but it, table two shows their their kind of iterative process of developing these EPAs. And so you see at the top round one, two, and three, and each column represents the, the you know, major changes that occurred within each round. So um, I, I'm very curious, like Katie, how you thought of how they were developing these things and what ended up being, you know, how they went from, um, a, nine EPAs and 144 milestones over to, you know, five EPAs um, and uh, what was a 40, I can't remember how many milestones are in that last one, 42, uh, 31 milestones. So in this development, they come up with these EPAs, technology setting the stage, which that one changes, scenario, pre-brief and debrief. I'm, I'm curious, Katie, what you thought of this? Yeah, first thing I thought was like so glad that they actually did rank technology higher. I when I saw the spread with so many physicians, I was like, oh, they might be biased towards having sim techs. And oh, like, yeah. oh, someone else can run the technology piece. Like, because we see that even in like Society for Simulation and Healthcare, there's kind of like two tracks where they're like, oh, you're the operations person and you're the educator. And my experience in EMS has been that we're both all at once, <laughs> all of the mm -hmm. things. You're like the only person. So <clears throat> But um, the idea of how much using the right piece of technology to teach a skill is underrated in our profession and just in education, medical education in general, I think of like how important it is for you to ventilate appropriately with like the appropriate volume, but we teach with mannequins that don't really have any good feedback. We have no way to measure it. Like, are we, we're saying someone is competent on ventilations, but we don't actually know how much volume they're delivering with how much force mm -hmm. or if they're getting a seal, all of those things. Um, so I was really excited to see that they thought that technology was just as important or close to as important, I would should mm -hmm. say, as pre-brief and debrief. Um, so that was really exciting. Uh, the fact that they went from 144 milestones down to 42, that to me uh, signifies that they had a lot of consensus uh, around what really you should be doing as you progress in your simulation education career, which is um Interesting because I don't know if we would be able to do that in EMS with what facilitates and what's important, but yeah, yeah, it was a really, really a good sign that there's a way to get to a place where we can all agree. That's a really good point because maybe that it's difficult because we're we're still struggling with the practice, and I mean, and and uh, Bill Tune, I don't know if you're able to talk on this one too, but. Um, Kim, Alex, when we when you start on this, do you start? Let's say we want to start looking at entrustable professional activities as a a model for uh, developing our paramedic students, you know, from novice to independent practice. And if we're looking at, do we need to do that before 
you ever turn to the actual faculty who are going to train them in simulation? Because if we don't know what the practice EPAs are, how do you develop the simulation? Uh, I guess, I don't know. It's, it's more of a teaching technique, though. Well, that was part of their challenge here, right? They had to kind of keep it agnostic because they had all of these different professions. And so that's why they ended up discarding some things along the way, because they were so specific to a particular profession that they had to say, okay, what is really common ground here that we feel would would um, work across all the professions within our province? And um, so I think that's part of the reason that they kind of parsed it down. The other thing I thought was sort of interesting about the fact that they kept technology and they kept scenario development, even though some people were like, well, we work from a standardized curriculum. We don't do that. We yeah. sort of faced that same argument with just entry level EMS educators who are like, why do I need to know how to write an objective? Why do I need to how know how to develop a lesson plan if I don't do that, if I'm not doing that. But in the end, what they felt like, it was such a foundational thing. And it was really critical for them to have an understanding of the technology and of um, how a scenario is actually developed, that it was really essential to the core competencies, to the core entrustable activities that they had to know. So for me, this part really kind of struck me as being kind of interesting in terms of a parallel to EMS educators. Yeah, especially the part where they talked about the, what I, I why do I need to know this if I have standard? The first thing I thought of was ACLS. If I have if I've got the instructor manual, which has everything in it and shows me, you know, exactly how to do this it, and it has the scenarios vetted and, and the, why do I need to know how to write a scenario when I use standardized validated scenarios in this book over here? So yeah, that definitely I could see, um, you know, we have AMLS and AMLS scenarios are, you know, <laughs> I could see that happening in EMS for sure. Um, I'm really glad to hear you say, uh, Katie, about the technology, because when we talk so much on on this podcast about, um, you know, simulation is is a technique, not a technology. It's a teaching technique, not not a technology. But to that, knowing the technology and can I trust you again, EPAs entrustable. That's the biggest word there. Can I trust this developing faculty member um, with this technology and, and to use this technology for what it's supposed to be used for in terms of feedback on ventilations and other things? Um, well, even yeah. when we think of um, people being able, it's like we talk about pre-brief and like safety and pre-brief, but if you don't understand like some of the technology pieces around like videos and when you should use videos and when people should watch themselves perform and who should be allowed to do that. Like, so if you don't understand those parts of the technology, you might actually ruin the pre-brief, even though you're mm -hmm. really good at the pre-brief and you set this like safe space for learning, the way that you handled the technology piece means that now their SIM is up on YouTube and that's no longer safe. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's like, you can't really disentangle them. That That's a really great one too, is video, the use of video and how will it be used and, and uh, yeah, rather than just using, I mean, that's, that's what happens to you. You get this new video kind of, um, system and then oh we're videotaping it yeah okay but what are we using it for and what 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 is the purpose of it so i didn't think about that in technology um one of the other things i wanted to bring up here was over in round one if you notice the there were nine epas and three of them were removed in the first round one was research and scholarship the other was patient safety and the third was teamwork and culture and at first I saw that and went, why would you remove these? You know, do I trust this person with? And I, and that's all I keep asking. Do I trust this person with? Um, and then, uh, you know, I thought about it and I thought, no, those are actually, they could be competencies or, or KSAs, you know, they could be part of that whole, they're more specific. They're embedded in other EPAs. So it's how specific. So EPAs are something you know, that will have multiple competencies in, inside of them. So, but at first I thought that I thought research and scholarship, why, why is that being? 
Yeah, I thought the same thing about like patient safety and teamwork. Yeah. I was like, that just doesn't make sense. But then once I sort of got my brain around what exactly is an entrustable activity, and going back to that example about managing an agitated behavioral patient, you could ha- that activity would fall under that, uh, you know, that competency rather would fall under that entrustable patient activity. You know, are you uh, safely administering medications? Are you um, working with the team to safely physically restrain a patient? Yeah. You know, all of those pieces fall beneath that activity that you have said this person must be able to do independently to be able to practice um, safely. And independently, that's sort of what it came back to each time, you know, it was, yeah, it was was sort of an eye opener for me, I must say. (laughs) Yeah. And the the research too, um, do you have the, do you have knowledge of the evidence basis for your actions and for your decisions? So I I thought that that as well. And when I'm looking over at the EPAs that in column three, where it's in round three, and you could apply these to each one um, or, or at least several of them, um, and not just patient safety. I would say um, it would be student safety as well, uh, or learner safety. But all, they could be applied in in several of those EPAs, especially research and scholarship. The education research that supports each one of those um, uh, EPAs. It, you would imagine it would have to be embedded in each one of those how to develop a scenario. There's a lot of evidence basis for it. Debriefing certainly has a lot of, um, you know, scholarship on, on methods of debriefing. Uh, the other thing that was removed in, in round two, so three of them were removed in round one, uh, but that left six. And then the other one was uh, logistics. Um, and it was like this, instead of having an overall I guess that it got embedded into setting the stage, but um, which was, I think, changed to sim- simulation facilitation and implementation. So that was probably the, the reason for it. Um, okay, so then the milestones, we see milestones that were uh, initially categorized through that, you know, beginner, novice, advanced and expert. And that was changed um, because they had a hard time, again, differentiating observable tasks in each of those categories. And so, um, you know, they tried to ensure more generalizability, like Kim was saying. So we can see, and then the the last part was just sort of tracking changes. And when we look at the evolution of the Delphi in this chart, which I thought was pretty helpful. So you can see kind of the overall evolution of of this. You had nine um, EPAs and 100 milestones in the first round. And then there are lots of track, you know, numbers of things changed. Um, between the first and second round that brought things down to, uh, you know, five EPAs and 42 milestones. And then in the final uh, Delphi round, five EPAs, 31 milestones, and then some changes in in wording and semantics. Um, Katie, I'm not watching the chat, so I'm not sure if you have any any questions or anything coming in from there, but if you could, you know, maybe bring those in um, or if somebody- yeah, Not yet, in, but not we yet. would love to have people- yeah. <laughs> I see something in the chat, but maybe that was from something earlier. Um, oh, that it's just Alex and his dog. Us. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm really curious how people do this. So this is, these are the entrustable professional activities. So landing here, these are the, the activities that came up with it as you're developing, um, you know, as, as you're in a mentoring uh, stage of a new faculty, um, technology, scenario design, simulation facilitation, pre-briefing and debriefing. And so, you know, when I think about the question, you know, at some point I've got to be able to trust this new faculty member with um, the technology, with the scenario design, they can do this independently now, um, or I can, I mean, who's to say that I'm the, this is the other thing I had a little bit of an issue with is what makes an expert an expert? What makes the, and I think they did as well, but what makes the person able to observe and, and judge, you know, that the person has met individual competencies that lead to this entrustment. So um, that, that to me was a little bit challenging. So uh, how do you, and let me open it up. How do you guys train your, um, new faculty 
in general, as the, you know, new faculty come into the institution for, you know, EMT or paramedic, how are they trained? How are they prepared as educators? Well, I worked in an EMS agency, not a university. So we relied um, on many, many, many adjunct instructors. Mm -hmm. So I would say that would be the biggest orientations that we had to do. So there was a brief online orientation that focused more on teaching and assessing psychomotor skills than anything else. And then they were paired with a peer for the first or sometimes second time that that they were evaluating to make sure that um, they were comfortable and then sort of scaffold them up to more and more, you know, maybe I started out with isolated skills and then scaffold them up into simulation over time. For other faculty, you know, in the 16 years I was there, um, I think only had um, two new faculty join. <laughs> And so basically with them, I did a needs assessment to see what uh, kind of what their um, background was in, uh, then tried to do some actual structured um, education, like on how to do a lesson plan, for example. No, they didn't know how to write a lesson plan. And so I, I had sort of a structured program um, that they went through and oriented with different other faculty and, and then, you know, worked independently, but they were quite experienced faculty, so. Yeah. Not ideal. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if anybody has used, there's existing, um, I don't want to say, I guess there's existing practices that a new faculty will use. And actually even, you know, even experienced faculty, and that is kind of winging it, right? Well, let me, let's bring you over here and um, you're the patient, you sit down and um, you know, tell the person a few words. I want you to have chest pain and dizziness and then have, you know, students come over and um, you guys are the responders. You come in and, and assess this patient and that kind of winging it um, sort of stuff. We talk about that a lot, but there's, there may be some beneficial things embedded in that practice rather than just kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying, that's a terrible practice. It's not standardized. It's not, you know, well thought out, you know, what can we get from existing practices? And I see Bill's on welcome bill. I'm wondering your thoughts. So, um, Kim brought up something similar because for the, when I was in Kansas for the period of time there, it was continuing education that, uh, that we did. And we, um, very much so. Uh, first of all, if it was a core, if it was one of the core training officers, you know, there was a, you know, a minimum standard that they had to have. They had to have at least a bachelor's degree. They had to hold all the merit badge instructor cards and stuff. Um, and then they, we had had to have some experience with them prior teaching small groups, you know, groups of six or less and stuff. And we had seen them and vetted them before they they got into that full-time role. But when we were doing, getting ready for training sessions, we certainly were no different. We had to use personnel from the field. But, and the first thing was, is we're, we tried to only go to people who wanted to teach versus being told to teach, wanted to teach. And then we did prep classes before we actually got into the training and the, the role of the full-time educator was not was to take care of all the coordination of getting units in and, and doing introduction, but then they were free enough to walk around to see how these other personnel were doing, to, so we could provide feedback to them and, and mentor them along that way. It's still not standardized by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, trying to do something versus what I've seen, and you brought it up before. I love the discussion about technology and stuff. How many of you have gone to help? Someone says, oh, we need an extra ACLS instructor. And they get, and you get there and um, <clears throat> you're watching people set up their stations and there's a monitor that's there that no one has ever seen before. They're trying to figure out how to hook it up to any kind of simulator so they could display the rhythm. I mean, I've seen, that's been almost in all the merit badge programs I've ever been involved in or asked to participate in, not ones necessarily that we ran. Um, it was always like that, just like you said, you know, oh, you got a pulse, you got a patch, and you're available, come teach. 
regardless of your ability or anything. Um, Bill, let's not just marry batch courses. That's EMS education. I mean, we're going to just be like straight up honest here. When I got to UCLA, it was uh, who knows somebody who has any ability to do anything EMS-y? Let's pull them in. It's a paramedic class, but we only have an EMT available. Let's change the skill to be an EMT skill because that's the person who has a pulse and is breathing and can be our six to one ratio. Uh, it's the same at Santa Rosa where I'm at now. I'm like making brownies, trying to convince people to come in off shift. They have no edu formal education in education, no formal education in sim. And I'm just hoping I get enough people that I can run around and make it work. Um, so I think that like for uh, EMS education, we have a whole problem. One, let's just say it right now, we're all underpaid, right? <laughs> like it's real hard to convince someone to come in to teach when they can get way more money on all the overtime that's available. And the fact that our profession is so understaffed right now, trying to get someone from the field is also really difficult. So we have some real barriers here. No, I, I agree with you. But, I think 100%. And the only thing I was going to add on to that, you brought up the pay, particularly when I was running my paramedic program. The, the, I had a very small group of people I would call on, and I had to make sure their hourly pay was at least their time and a half pay that they would get working overtime in the field. I yeah, don't know how we, to manage that. That sounds like a miracle to me. <laughs> well, it was a miracle only in the sense that we had a tuition in the 80s that was five or $6,000 a student for paramedic education at a hospital-based program. That's what, when I managed an education, uh, an on-site education program, that's one thing that was difficult is like the, the, the paramedics are, reimbursed reasonably well here in Minnesota. We're, we're pretty high up on the list of, of median paramedic pay in the United States. And then saying, hey, like you can go from this hourly role where you have to work three days a week. And if you get burned by an hour, you get overtime. Uh, and uh, otherwise you come to this five day a week salaried role uh, where if you get burned by an hour, that's because you're salaried. And sometimes that just happens. And, and asking people to, to make that change can be difficult. And I think one of the ways to really improve that, not just the the global kind of cost of living crisis and allied health and, and allied health support professions is to to make sure that they're well-educated in being an educator, right? Uh, shortly before I transitioned into a new role, we got a, a HAL, like a really nice HAL on a grant. And we sent somebody to a one-day course and then had the HAL guy come up. And, and I don't know that we set that person up for success because now we're asking them to be a facilitator and an operator. And to, to KT's point, that's really difficult. Um, and so it, how, how do we fix that short of educating our educators and then developing that trust from the content level expertise of somebody who, who manages simulation, right? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that would be great is if we could get into this. This group was the whole geographic region, right? And like Megan is not not that far from me. Like one of my mm -hmm. students is doing an internship near her house, but we don't train our educators together. And we got Napa paramedic yeah. program right around the corner. And we're all kind of trying to figure this out in our own shops. I think we need this, like one of their regionality of this program was so successful. Um, and that's one of the things we're missing. It came out of their initial needs assessment too, because they documented siloism as one of the issues. So uh, lack of standardization and siloism. So to bring it together like this, and I'm not sure, I'm not familiar with the, you know, provincial simulation program, but somehow it came, this came from a higher level that was able to bring groups together. So that, yeah, I thought that was, that was step one in a great move. Um, and I think, you know, as is classic in, in our field and probably in other areas like nursing and um, we, we, we want to get together, um, but, and, and, uh, Nemsi's in Reno, so we're, we're close. <laughs> we'll have to, to meet up, but that's, that's exactly, you know, trying to get folks together. I, I was actually thinking too, and, um, I'd love to know Kim's thoughts on this, of future research. I mean, I'm, anytime I open up an article like this, I think of the research opportunities, in EMS. And uh, there's several here, like even just having, you know, repeating this among our, uh, you know, future research questions that center around teaching would be EPAs, developing EPAs through this modified Delphi approach. 
of uh, for preceptors um, or for EMS faculty. I mean, that's I think that would be an interesting endeavor, and especially for preceptors, because that is just a huge gap that's out there. And one of the things that I was thinking as you guys were talking is, what is it about how we, we, uh, you'll have a group of preceptors and okay, you have to require, we require a competency, which is, you know, fill it, fill out this or fulfill this training that is required. And that's in the accreditation standards, which can help us at least with the competencies part. But we still know that practice as a preceptor varies and sometimes, and it's not necessarily predictable. You can have somebody who's brand new, who went through your training, who's got a first intern, who has some of the most promising and best practices as an educator in terms of, you know, communications and feedback, you know, providing accurate feedback, um, addressing remediation, you know, communicating with the college. I mean, it just isn't as predictable as I would have imagined. So Kim, what do you think about future research ideas that came out of this? Well, just exactly what you said. What are the entrustable activities for a preceptor would be like a starting point. But of course, the barriers, you know, I mean, I think, you know, we think about all the barriers to that because, you know, in my system, everybody was a preceptor unless they were on some kind of administrative probation or something. Mm -hmm. And it could be the newest person in the system or whatever. It just is the way it was. And I feel like I had a really great system because we at least were one system and we could communicate with people and answer questions. But um, we don't, you know, we don't have the ability uh, in most systems to be able to say we're going to actively mentor someone as a preceptor, not just have peer support with somebody else that, oh, yeah, I've been a preceptor before. Here's how you do this. Here's how you address this student problem but actively mentor somebody who wants to be a preceptor and say, you know, what, what are your goals? Where are you feeling you need to work on? And then, you know, have some goals for them. Um, but to have some actual entrustable activities when, when many of us struggle, you know, I've been on many site visits where people struggle just to get their capstone preceptors trained in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's so different from medical school or um, nursing school, for example, where they have much more control over those capstone yeah. preceptors and those mentors. Not that they're all perfect, but, it, you know, it just the lack of control over our systems is really a problem in many ways. I think interestingly too, Kim, in medical school, there's like built in train the person below you. So they like everyone who's becoming an attending has already had years of practice training the junior residents or training the interns. And for some reason, we don't build that into EMS. And maybe that's the model we need to be looking at that while mm. you're learning your paramedic competencies, you're also learning like foundational how to train an EMT partner or how to talk with or evaluate EMT partners kinds of situation. I just think back to like the things that I have to check off and I have to check off that every single one of my paramedic students team led a geriatric stroke. And I'm like, I don't care that they've all seen 24 different iterations of a geriatric stroke. Like that's the least important thing to me because they do that in EMT. Maybe we could take like some of that time and that checkbox from what I'm supposed to do. And Sim, can you like explain CPR to an EMT partner, or can you validate that your EMT partner knows how to do this skill? That might be really more beneficial. We were able to do a little bit of that when the students got to Capstone, they were uh, permitted to start to teach in the EMT program, Um, you know, selected students that were doing really well. And so um, we were able to start to mentor them in that way, but still a very imperfect system. Yeah, and and Katie, or in general, the audience is my experience of men with physicians is I don't disagree with you, the see one, do one, teach one principle that exists within medical education. That doesn't mean people like to do it. And many physicians move out of academic medical centers because they don't want to teach at all. And I've run it, you know, this particularly was an issue with our anesthesia clinical is the anesthesiologist says, I came here to a community hospital, so I didn't have to teach. And they were resentful that we 
you know, wanted to have our paramedic students there. So we had to be very creative and work around that. But there's not all people want to do, even if they had learned their that their own way. So I, I, I don't know if that is necessarily the answer, but it certainly might be a way to identify potential future people that would like to have an opportunity to be involved in, in education and develop. But, you know, you've heard me talk about this before. The beauty, the beauty of this paper and what they did here was is they thought there was a need to work on the instructors and how challenging that is. We, because even as we look here, in our experience, whether you be in a state or you even be within, uh, you know, different counties with one program on one side of the county and the other on the, another county, but right next door to each other, and their programs are dramatically different, even though they follow the KHEP standards, you know, it doesn't mean they're the, the same kind of program. But I do appreciate their effort to do this. The, and But one statement with this made earlier, and I don't care whether we're we're talking any level of EMS practitioner, shouldn't they want to be getting better all the time? Do they need someone to tell them where their gaps are? Or should they also have that self-reflection capability to know where their gaps are in themselves and seek out that opportunity to do improve? Because that's how, that's how I do it, but that doesn't mean it works for everyone. Uh, I mean, dog. Bill, not to open a can of worms, but shouldn't EMS providers want to be EMS providers? I mean, a good portion of our workforce is doing it so they can have a completely different job. Agree. The authors do point out that in general, um, professionals are not very good at uh, at self-assessment and identifying <laughs> weaknesses. And, you know, just the human nature is, for example, with continuing competency, if you have the ability to choose from several activities, you're probably going to choose from something that you like rather than something where you might have a, an identified weakness, unless somebody identifies it for you. Yeah. I'm wondering too, if the EPAs are the same, are the, are EPAs the same for through your, you know, as you are training it and, and go and achieving, you know, the initial license as they are, as you continue, or do they, you know, do they change? Cause it is a workplace reflection. And actually, Kim, the other thing I thought about was the practice analysis comes into this. So the national registries practice analysis kind of, it, it can at least support, you know, what, what is expected um, as you're developing maybe practice, you know, these activities, these professional activities that need to be done, the, the general statement of it. And then all of the competencies come from there. And that's where accreditation comes in. And when they use the uh, the, I, the example of simulation accreditation, um, you know, the being accredited as a simulation program um, as an opportunity to take those competencies and then develop from that EPAs. I thought that was a really great way of using existing structures and, and expectations to then develop all of the, what are, what are the entrustable professional activities that have to come from, from that for our simulation faculty? Well, back to your first sort of comment about, you know, would the entrustable activities be different based upon whether you were a new grad versus whether you were a, a field provider that had been working, let's say for five years. One of the reasons that they kind of took that piece out of their entrustable activities was because they felt like the ability to distinguish between novice and expert, those, those you know, that novice and beginner to proficient and, and expert, it was not that easy. It was not going to be easy to have something that was distinctly observable between those levels. And so I think that that's where you would get your difference. And that's where you see a difference in practice with people that they can handle any situation that you throw at them and they can still do all the competencies within that because they've seen many different things over their career. They've been able to reflect on them, improve their practice compared to the people that really never advanced past competent because maybe they don't have, you know, maybe they work in a really quiet service or maybe they don't reflect on their practice. So they just never get better at it. And then with regard to the tasks, I think if you were going to develop entrustable activity, medical activities for EMTs and paramedics, 
the practice analysis is exactly where to start. Yeah. Because, you know, especially with an increased focus on the tasks below each of those areas, um, I think that you would easily be able to sort of, well, no, it wouldn't be easy no matter what you would do, <laughs> but you would at least be able to capture the the tasks underneath those entrustable activities because they are fairly well defined in the practice analysis, especially in the in the EMT practice analysis is coming out. So then to follow up with that, does the national EMS education standards provide a structure? for then doing this for educators. I mean, it, it, the education standards are more based upon what we're teaching, right? What the content is not, although simulation is mentioned in it as, as a how, um, it's, right. I mean, yeah, I the how the part is, yeah. Yeah, I think the closest thing was the 2002 guidelines for educating in EMS that knits a document that defined that what, at least what should be the, the KSAs that a an educator should have, um, but then nobody has really taken that to develop entrustable professional activities for an EMS educator because the roles are different, right? You know, you might just be somebody that comes in and teaches ACLS or an adjunct that teaches a skill station, or you might be the sim specialist, or you might be somebody that works only in the class, you know? So, I mean, yeah. there's a lot of different roles that you'd have to really define out for entrustable medical activities or entrustable professional activities for the educator. I mean, many of us did all of those roles, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but it would, it would be tricky. That That's yeah. And I'm wondering though, why it isn't tricky in, in other, it, 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 it must've been tricky in other areas. So are they specifically defining, and Katie, maybe you can answer this one too. Um, you know, does a simulation facilitator, is a simulation facilitator, a simulation facilitator, or are there levels of simulation facilitators? Like you said, they, you know, sometimes you were glad to see technology and they didn't break out the operations person, but, um, you know, yeah, I mean, towards the end of their paper, I mean, it's literally right before they get to limitations, they're talking about how they're really targeting people who are new to simulation and that there is a whole nother level that they didn't even tack on to. Like, how do you do virtual simulations? How yeah. are you doing here debriefing? How are you doing um, code debriefing? So I, I do think that the answer is that there are multiple levels, but the first thing is really to, I I think we're it's, it's going to be difficult for us to get, as Kim said, to all of the different things you have to do, but us just to recognize and acknowledge that there are different skill sets, I think is really important. We didn't really do that during the pandemic where we were like, hey, everyone can teach online. Mm-hmm. And the education yeah. community is very much like, no, that's not a thing. You can't just teach online because you can teach in person. Um, so I think just recognizing that yeah, teaching a skill is one thing. Teaching in the classroom is something. Teaching something as complicated as like cultural humility is really, a, it's a skill in itself. Being able to facilitate difficult conversations is a skill and that you don't have to be able able to do all of them, but maybe instead of saying, oh, you have one year of experience, that means you can teach in any program at any time, or you have one year of experience, you can be a preceptor for any situation. That doesn't really I think it's the wrong approach. We need to start saying there are specific skills and let's figure out what they are and train people to them so they can be successful as yeah. Alex said. <laughs> yeah. Well, any final thoughts? We're right uh, approaching the top of the hour and uh, we're getting ready for close out another great discussion. Any final thoughts from anybody? Again, I appreciate the author's uh work and publishing this it helps add to the body of knowledge and uh, it's really good uh the only thing i want to mention that if uh, any of you are bored and you live in the state of texas near austin texas during the month of may from may 15th to the 19th the society of academic emergency medicines annual meeting is in austin texas and this is where all the academic programs that train emergency medicine residents get together. And it's a, there's lots of excellent education and research that's, uh, that's presented there. So I'd encourage you to, uh, to drop in if you can.
Great. Thanks. Bill's always been a big fan of that conference. I've been to it once and it is an excellent conference. So thanks for that. All right. Thank you all for joining us. Um, we will be back at the pre-hospital care ah, research forum. Almost forgot the name. PCRF Education Research Journal Club will be back Friday, May 26th. 10 a.m. Pacific, noon central, and uh, next Clinical Journal Club with Dr. Remley Crow, Dr. Tony Fernandez, Monday, May 8th. So join us. You can join us live each month. You can register at prehospitalcare.org. And don't forget, you can go to YouTube to catch some past episodes. Thank you all for joining us. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at www.pcrfpodcasts.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website at www.prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsor, Limmer Education, providing education tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey.